Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 21st, 2022. Joining me for today's podcast is Stuart Alban, who scribes for Popular Mechanics, U.S. News, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other fine publications. Rob Pegarero, who writes frequently on tech policy for Wirecutter, PC Magazine, and U.S. Today. John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide, is out of the country on assignment, but I've got my two baseball buddies here, and I want to welcome you to the podcast. Guys, how are you? Well, we'd be happier if the end released and I would be happier if the Yankees were winning. Well, that, and that that's a profound thing for you to say since you're a Mets fan. It's so, true. It well, next week I, I, I will be, be happier if the Nats and Juan Soto could come to an agreement. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. Hey, Rob, let me, let yeah, me ask no. you a question. Stuart and I were chatting about this before, the, um, uh, before we went uh, live here. Are you a fan of the of going to the shift, uh, um, bar the shift next year, or are you a fan of uh, letting the manager put the place to play wherever he wants to on the field? I mean, having been in a Nats game two weeks ago where somebody did what you're supposed to do, which is hit against the shift, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I would just assume, you know, we've had a lot of tinkering with the rules already. So I don't know that we really need to, I don't know. I mean, They've been trying out. How is it? They don't they have a rule against that in uh, the minors? How's that been working out? In some yeah. minors, not all of them. It's not universal. They're okay. trying out, trying it out in different leagues or different levels, I should say. Because when you can actually see it happen, where you, everyone shifts over to the right and the hitter's like, I see what you're doing. <laughs> and then he sends it into the left field corner. That's fun to watch. Yes, yep. it is. It is. And a double turns into a triple, a triple turns into a double yep. back turns into an inside park home run. I don't get it. You know, that could be a separate podcast. And <laughs> yeah. God knows, uh, maybe I should do a baseball specific um, podcast. I, yeah. I probably should do that. Let us get to our first topic. And uh, Stuart, you know, you brought this topic to my attention. I, I've actually uh, read a bit about it. And this actually kind of shocked me. Well, maybe it's in, way, in some ways it shocked me and otherwise it doesn't shock me. And I'm a Ring customer, so I'm a bit concerned about this is that apparently Amazon's ring has provided doorbell footage to the police without the owner's consent, uh, consent 11 times so far this year. Now, that seems like a small number, you know, versus the, the amount of footage that the ring device collects. But nevertheless, um, I think that's a bit concerning. So, Stuart, let me uh, let you jump into it and let's kind of dive deep into it. Tell you, I'll tell you, I've, I've been really tossing and turning on this one. I'm also a ring owner. And the, uh, the FAQs and the privacy policy all state that they do not, under normal circumstances, share footage with law enforcement uh, without your consent unless there isn't enough time to get a warrant or life is in danger. And the reason I'm going to toss about this is a couple of things. One, if we're only talking about ring doorbell cams, not the indoor ring cameras that they've started to sell, they're pointed outwardly. So I don't know what privacy issues that we're really concerned about here. You are free, for instance, to take a, a camera on the street, a phone on the street, and film whatever you want. 
So the fact that this is attached to your door, I'm trying to figure out why this would be a problem. The second thing is that if you sign up for Ring Neighborhood, you yes. will get a feed of potential break-ins and video footage from other people's Ring cameras uh, in. in your feed if you opt in. So while I saw the report and I saw, oh, they did it without the owner's consent, and once I started to think about it, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to figure out why this is a bad thing if if it's done on very rare occasions, which 11 times out of the millions upon millions of ring cameras that there are, and if it could possibly save a life or catch crook. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out where the harm is here, at least as far as ring doorbell cams are concerned, as opposed to indoor cameras. And I don't know if ring differentiates their privacy policies from their indoor or outdoor cameras but for the outdoor cameras i for the life of me i can't figure out where the harm is well if you have an outdoor for example you you and i probably have a similar type of configuration for our doorbell rings and that i live in a condo mm -hmm. and the doorbell ring is to the common uh, hallway mm -hmm. and um i collect footage all the time i subscribe to the to the plan and uh you know, the, the, now I live in a, the building is a private building. Uh, the, the, the footage is mine. You know, if the police wanted to investigate a crime, say, hey, some, you know, someone got killed in your hallway, we'd like to get footage. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's, that's my guess, is that's, that's probably where the issue came from, is that the person who thought that the, uh, who, the police went to the, to the uh, person who wanted to get the footage, who wanted that footage, Maybe for whatever reason they didn't file a um, a subpoena, a subpoena, or just a a, a um, get a warrant uh, for that information. Well, like and I said, the, yeah, the right now, you say that they, that ring retains permission if they don't have the time to get a warrant and there are lives in danger. That sort and right. what the police call exigent circumstances. Is right, right. So, but but even if you strip the details out here. Assuming that it's not an indoor camera, assuming that it was this is about an outdoor camera, because um, I, 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 those guidelines I've always been comfortable with. I think those are very reasonable guidelines that most people would sign up to. Mm -hmm. And by the way, most people who live in a home who have a doorbell, you're, you're, you're accessing not just the front of your yard, but you're accessing the street, which is a public area. And the sidewalk. Right, and the sidewalk. And to your point, Stuart... You know, if you're participating in, in uh, the ring program, the neighborhood program, the reality is, is that you're getting access to content from fellow ring owners. So you can you can understand if there's a crime issue in your in your uh, area. So the, the thing that disturbed me about the story initially was that the way that it was presented in the media was, oh, my God, they're letting people they're letting ring see. And, you know, it was this pants on fire attitude to the story. And and, you know, the headline is designed to a certain extent or the presentation designed to get you upset. But like I said, the more I thought about it, the more I'm thinking, is this dog bites mailman? I'm I'm not sure why this is. Yeah, a I, I'm a big well, I want to get I want to pull Rob into this letter. <laughs> no, but my guess this is kind of a non-issue and, and and someone by the way whoever wrote that piece did not have an understanding of of um amazon's and rings uh, privacy policy which is pretty, pretty spoken but rob let me pull you into the conversation to get your uh, commentary so my read on this this falls into a larger pattern and a larger 
larger problem of Amazon just not being transparent enough about how it responds when governments ask for its data. It was one of the last large tech companies to start publishing a, trans a transparency report, and it remains one of the worst at doing that. I just looked up the transparency report covering uh, law enforcement request law enforcement request from July 1st to December 31st, 2021. It runs three pages. Uh, it is, compared to others, a joke. There's no detail about what sort of breaks it down, Amazon, including AWS and AWS. There's no detail about how many requests involve data collected from Amazon devices. It is so much less information than what you get from Apple, from Google, from Twitter, from Microsoft, from Facebook. And it's been a problem for years. I, mm. I talked to people about 2019 and their professional opinion was Amazon is not taking this seriously. So if Amazon would like to be better understood, they could try keeping up with the neighbors on this instead of being the most opaque large tech company. I mean, maybe it's worse. I mean, who knows? But they're not doing a good job, and that's their fault. Right. Well, and well, I, th I, think, I think there's a difference between data that Amazon collects for its internal purposes, for anti-competitive purposes, and that sort of thing. And then the ring um, privacy policies for how video footage is used is very clearly laid out there. It's not buried in a list of terms. There is an FAQ, and and it clearly lists all the conditions under which it says when, well, will, they share it, when will they share it. It's pretty well laid out in the ring app. Yeah, yes. And no, I think that's a good point, Stuart. That, that itself is good. One nice thought, clear privacy policies is you can then hold companies accountable because if you break mm -hmm. them, then the Federal Trade Commission has a ready-made case, a no pitch over the plate that they can use to take the company into account for doing one thing when it said it would do another. Well, again, maybe we'll hear more about this. I'm a bit confused. I think, Stuart, you're a bit confused. Um, I do agree with the accountability uh, 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 dimension of this that you brought up, Rob. But, um, you know, I just think this is kind of a, you know, there's very little smoke and no fire. So I'm not, not quite understanding where the, uh, the issue here. Uh, let's go to the next topic here. This is an interesting thing. This is kind of the... Um, uh, a topic that I think is really important because it's, you know, I think it's a signal of what, it, uh, assuming this is accurate, and I have a reason, reason to believe that, that the uh, Samsung would not be um, misleading people about this, but I think they surprised people by um, uh, disclosing that their foldings of uh, smartphone shipments reached nearly 10 million last year. That not even, it's not even a 2022 stat. This is a 2021 stat. And, um, I think we've talked about this before. I think we all believe that, you know, foldable phones, you know, foldable displays are now coming into vogue. There's all kinds of advantages to that. You know, you could have a bigger phone when it's unfolded. And I guess, uh, you know, so I want to get your reaction to this because I think it is, is to me, this is an interesting sign of what, uh, what may be coming. And, and let's, uh, let's face it, you know, the, the, the big kahuna in the room, Apple, they do not have a, a folding phone. They will all, Absolutely, I'm working on something, you know, uh, and uh, I don't know. I don't have first-hand knowledge of that, but the, the I think that would be the shock of the century um, if that wasn't the case. But Stuart, let me get your reaction to that Samsung disclosure. Well, a couple of things. Just on the Apple point, just within the last couple of days, there was uh, some news reporting that Apple had. Well, I'm all right. That some leaked photos or leaked um, design 
blueprints were released of an Apple foldable, either a phone or, or a tablet. So they're obviously looking at it. The 10 billion figure, Samsung is far and away the biggest seller of foldable phones at the moment, but every single other major smartphone maker other than Apple is either got one in the works or is already selling one. Now, the 10 million, given the billion of literally billion smartphones that are sold every year is a relative drop in the bucket. But for those people who say that there isn't any um, innovation in smartphones, I, I've been saying for the last couple of years that I thought that as soon as Apple entered this market, which could be as soon as next year, um, that I think a lot more people will be attracted to smartphones. They not only it's not uh, or foldable phones. It's not only that you get a bigger screen on the inside, but you also will get a same a, a good size screen on the outside. The new Ray, Motorola Razor that. Uh, uh, is is rumored is going to have a four or five inch screen on the outside of the fold. So you not only get a bigger screen inside, but you get more screens in total. Now, whether or not they can make them thinner, whether or not they can create a um, I don't know killer app to make to uh, go along with whatever the convenience factor is. I mean, there's still a lot of open questions that I don't. I think that a lot of consumers still don't even know that they're out there or understand why they would need one. But I think in considering how popular the clamshell was way back before the smartphone and how small they are, especially where women are concerned to put them in purses or other or in small pockets, not to be chauvinistic, um, or for use with smaller hands. I, I, I think this is I would say the future, but I think this is just going to continue to become much a much bigger segment of the market. Well, and, and, and you're right in pointing out 10 million from a relative perspective when you compare the overall size of the smartphone market is a small market. Now, I will say one thing about what um, the, the, the foldable version uh, portion is a small, a small part of the overall market. The, the point that I would make, though, is that Apple has a history of being kind of a fast follower in this area. If you recall, Samsung really was one of the first smartphone companies to, to really um, advance the notion of a really large form factor smartphone and there was about a year or so it may have been a couple of years that apple almost pretended that uh, customers did not want you know large you know 16 HTC was really big on the big screens also when they were yeah yeah it wasn't only samsung samsung certainly was there well before apple was then apple you know came along and i think rob get, get your commentary on this you know apple has a tendency of legitimizing the market because some of the challenges with smartphones and Samsung had this with the early versions of their uh, foldable phones. It was cracking. Yep. I don't think they did a lot of they, the usability testing from a, um, uh, you know, can this, you know, withstand, you know, the, the types of you know, folds that are going to take place on a daily basis projected over a year or over several years. I don't think that was, uh, I think there were some issues that affected Samsung in the early beginning. I think they've largely been put behind them, but you know that Apple's not going to bring something to the market that, obviously has those kind of reliability uh, issues but what's your thoughts they I mean, may, apple may never bring a foldable phone to the market remember they've yet to get into wow. convertible laptops they've had they could have done that at any point in the last dozen years and they've consistently said no we don't think people want that uh, even though even when that's become kind of the dominant almost the default laptop type in the windows so i am not going to Apple deciding, no, we're just not going to do it. Same way they, they, you know, they don't have lots of other kinds of phones that are super, super common in, 
uh, in the Android universe. That's what, you know, I didn't think we need to make a gentleman's bet on that, uh, Mr. Pegoraro, because I, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I mean, there's very few things that I would bet on that Apple is going to do, but I suspect they, they're going to, I think their hand's going to be forced because 10 million is not a small number, uh, a, a tiny, tiny number. Well, in, in, uh, in the context of iPhone sales, it is a tiny number. Well, tiny. Well, but 10 million is 10 million. And, and, and the point I'm making is that that number will only grow over time. And to Stuart's point, uh, there will be a usage model. I don't know what it is. I have a couple of ideas that it might be, but there might be some usage models that kind of in, that kind of uh, present itself that says, you know, if I don't have a, a foldable phone, that usage model is impossible to to uh, to execute. So uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. I think that's fair to say. Yes, I think I think that's fair to say. Let us hit the next topic here, and that is as I hit the button over here. You know, something that uh, that I did about a week ago, and this kind of, and I want to, because I have the two right guys on the on the podcast to uh, to talk about this, is that uh, Dell sent me one of their new XPS 13 Plus uh, Thin and Light Notebooks, which is absolutely a beautiful notebook. I wrote about it. It's absolutely spectacular. If you're looking for a, a very nice alternative to the um, uh, to the uh, MacBook Air, naturally the, 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 the my friends at Dell sent me a the sample they sent me had a 512 gigabyte drive which today is you know considered relatively small so I went out of my way there's there's a lot of YouTube videos out there and uh, I don't D Dell's not a big fan of this but you know you can if you've got a torque screwdriver a T6 screwdriver it's easy to take the six screws out take the uh, the bottom of the unit out and you can replace it to your heart's content with a variety of of, of um, solid state drives that are very cost effective. And within about 15 minutes, I was able to upgrade that unit from 512 to, to, to two terabyte. And I, I guess the point I'm making is, how do each of you feel about upgrades, particularly on systems that you're not supposed to do it? I mean, I, I think you've done, Rob, you've done a little bit of work with this on a, on, a, on a Mac. So I want to get your view on your experience and then the question, would you tell others to do it? <laughs> Yeah, so I've actually done this on three of her devices. On my old iMac, I replaced the hard drive with an SSD, which was easily the best, like 200 bucks and change I've spent on a system. And yeah, the, the challenge factor of doing this kind of surgery on a device completely not made for it was a little exciting. Uh, on my old ThinkPad, I replaced the hard drive on that with an SSD, which, yeah, surprisingly easy. And the, Another fun thing is when you finish that replacement, you have this hard drive and the, the easiest way to ensure the hard drive cannot be read is to <laughs> take a crowbar and stab it. <laughs> so it's a good way to work out some, uh, you know, let some, let us some steam. And on the uh, HP laptop over here, I replaced the battery on that last year, which again was the hardest part was finding out where to buy the battery from since HP's yeah. documentation was not super straightforward. I'm a fan of that. I think it should be easy to do. I mean, these are laptops. This is not like a phone where you have weird engineering criteria. It has so many space and size constraints. You need to be water resistant. It's a computer. You're not going to use this thing in the rain. So they should be designed for some repairability. And it is a smart and kind thing when manufacturers build them that way. Well, in truth, my biggest challenge when I did my you know, notebook surgery uh, last week was not the hardware uh, upgrade. It was after that was done, was moving the operating system from the old drive to the new drive. And because uh, since you can buy just about anything you, you can think about on, 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 on Amazon, 
there's a company out there that makes a um, an external USB-C adapter that you can put a NV, um, NVMe drive into, and you just plug it in USB into a USB-C oh, port. Like an yeah, it's an enclosure, and essentially with um, Acronis and a few others make really good backup software that makes a ghost image of the drive and moves it over. That was the only thing that was a bit, you know, for the average person may have a, a few, maybe a bit challenge with doing, you know, moving the drive, the image over from the other drive, one drive to the other. But now to your point, uh, Rob, and I want to get Stuart, pull Stuart into this, is that more and more notebook manufacturers are making these notebooks so thin that it is a bit, a bit of a challenge from an, an upgrade standpoint. And, and God knows I would never recommend you doing this with Apple MacBooks because Apple actually goes out of its way to prevent you from doing this. Even if you can get into the carcass, they do all kinds of things that are make it very risky to do. And by the way, I, let's, you know, let's be totally um, clear. You violate your warranty, certainly if you do this. So there's a, there's a warranty issue. But, you know, Stuart, I'm sure you've done this kind of thing in the past. Let me get your view. And, you know, would you recommend it to others? The last time I did it was on my Mac desktop where uh, it came with eight gigabit of RAM and that was ridiculous. That's like having one pocket and a pair of pants and I expanded it to 32 gigabytes. That was the last time I took a screwdriver to a computer item. Um, my lone Windows machine is a uh, Acer laptop that, the that Acer was very kind enough to lend me for those times that I need a Windows laptop, which isn't that often. Um, I would, um, as you noted, I would never attempt to open up an, an Apple um, laptop. Uh, I would take it into the store. The last time I had any surgery done on an Apple laptop was to replace the butterfly keyboard, which, by the way, Apple just announced apparently there was. Some, How much of a check are you getting? There was a settlement that anybody who bought a, a, a Apple laptop with a butterfly keyboard. Um, might be able to be eligible to get some money back from Apple. So I'm I'm going to have to look more into that. Maybe we could discuss that more next week with instructions on how to do that, since that's a rather probably large population. But the, I I would not attempt, as you said, to do that with a MacBook only because you would void the the um, the warranty. And most of the stuff if you bought it within the first year, they'll, they'll do it for you. Well, you know it's amazing. And so you go onto YouTube, and there's all kinds of videos out there that. For people who, uh, especially the brave people who try to upgrade an iMac, the old when I say the old, the older iMacs. What I did, kind of, taking yeah, that mine was screen, not so old that I had to like remove the screen with glue. Just suction cups yeah. could have done that. Yeah, yeah well, I had you had to like loosen the glue with a hairdryer or something. Oh my God. Uh, that's really not designed. Yeah, for that, that. Uh, well, that's scary. One, that's one thing scary. that pisses me off is I was looking to get a new laptop for my wife and the jump from a one to a two terabyte drive is like 200 or 400 way much more money than buying a, yes. a external one terabyte drive and that's where they really get you on the prices by yes. not letting you do it yourself and charging you through the wazoo to buy it yep. to begin with and that's the it's literally the one thing that's stopping me from getting the damn laptop because they charge so much for the jump up in storage memory. Right, and it, right. it, it's, it's, it, that pisses me off that they're, right. I think, overcharging for that. That, that, uh, it's like, Mark, like they, the rest of, they make their all their money on More the alcohol. One, I think. <laughs> no, that, that two terabyte drive that I bought the other day was 250 bucks, you know? And, and, and that was at retail. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, you can probably get it cheaper if you shop around uh, a bit. So I, the, yeah, the only thing, the, the only thing I, I will say in closing on this is that 
you know, you really have to know what you, you, you're getting into uh, when you do it. Um, I, again, I would never recommend doing it with an iMac for the reasons that uh, Stuart that you said and, and by Rob has had some personal experience with this. When you start talking about suction cups and I'm using a hairdryer to melt, melt the glue around the monitor, okay, check, please. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, I just, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm one of those guys, too, that if I buy it, um, I know, especially if you buy something from Apple, Versus one of the PC OEMs, you do pay a significant tax, uh, a tax, so to speak, on, uh, because you can't change it once you get that configuration at home. Yep. Let us hit the last topic we're going to talk about today. And this will be a fun one because, Rob, this is right in your wheelhouse. Uh, yep. Boom, yep. supersonic reel, reel, this really cool new design for an ultra-fast passenger jet with more engines. Um, tell us about it because it sounds really cool. It does sound really cool. What we're talking about here is a company that's based outside of Denver called Boom Supersonic. They've been developing a jet which will carry from like 60 to 80 passengers called the Overture. It's been in the works for a while, since like 2016, and they've iterated the design a little bit. What they're saying now is this is not the final, final design, but this is basically the outlines are set. So they've gone from three engines to four. The, the logic there being that having the third engine in the tail as if it were an L-1011, for the, those of you of a certain age, would have made it a lot harder to maintain and service and everything. And they couldn't do two engines because that's the huge, big, efficient engines you have under a 787 or an A380. You cannot adopt them for supersonic flight. The, the, the front of them is just too big. So four smaller engines. Um, you know, they, they've worked on the aerodynamics. It's got the sleek area ruled fuselage, the sort of Coke bottle shape you see on fighter jets from the 1960s, which is, you know, good engineering. What they haven't said is what engines are going under the wings, which is really frustrating and weird that they haven't clarified that yet, because you, you can't just pencil that into the last minute. This is not like going to the, the parts catalog and like, I'll, I'll take four of these things. They need to identify a supplier, rework an, an existing subsonic engine, whether it's for uh, military aircraft, commercial aircraft, whatever, test the heck out of it, make sure it's certified. And this this is not a quick process in commercial aviation. And the company is burning up a fair amount of credibility among aviation industry analysts and observers every day they go without identifying this. And the frustrating thing is, like, I get their use case. This I think there is a market for people who would want to be able to get from New York area to London in three and a half hours instead of seven to get from, they're saying Seattle to Tokyo in four and a half hours. Longer than that, you need a fuel stop and some of your advantages go away. They mm. say they can make the economics work. They say these engines, whoever's going to make them, will be able to run on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. So the carbon footprint zeroes out. They're not trying to solve the sonic boom, boom problem. So it will be quieter takeoff because this thing will not fly an afterburner. So it won't be like the Concorde shaking houses as it goes overhead. You will mm -hmm. have a sign, but it's only going to annoy uh, fishermen in the North Atlantic, I guess. So all that seems good. They, they do have 15 orders from United Airlines, although they're not like ironclad. United's announcement from last year said, you know, this is subject to overture meeting our safety, uh, you know, reliability, et cetera, requirements. So the, there's an out there. Boom is correct in saying, look, the Concorde only got 14 orders. There were lots of options from airlines like Pan Am and TWA. They were going to, they said they would buy a bunch, but they never got to firm orders. So right. there is, there are real endorsements. They announced a partnership with Northrop Grumman. 
to work on a military government version. Uh, the boom CEO said basically, how many secret, how many allies can the Secretary of State visit in a day? If he's flying on this, answers a lot. So I want to believe, but you know, the company cannot go too many more weeks, certainly months, without saying what engines are going under the wing, who's going to make it. And, and I assume, because you're, you you cover this very closely, that from a business model and cost standpoint, it's going to have the same issue as the Concorde did in terms of it's a premium experience. I mean, yeah, yeah, you saved a lot of time when you fly the Concorde, but if I recall, a one-way ticket on the Concorde, the cheapest ticket you could get was, was 1500 or $2,000 in the, to- in the day. Yeah, probably there, higher. there are various ways around it that you could have flown it for yes, for less. Uh, I, I will note, so one friend of mine did fly the Concorde. FYI, if you want to know if any of your friends did fly that Mach 2 SSD, you don't have to ask. They'll tell you endlessly. <laughs> um, but the idea being it, yes, this would basically be, you know, there, there's no economy class on this. You might have more or less space <laughs> configuration. But we're talking a business class ticket, you know, save up your United Milers plus miles, I guess. Uh, and yeah, people will spend a lot of money on that. People spend a ton of money on private jets and and certainly for seats up. Rob, is the cabin of the plane designed in a more luxurious way? Because that was the other knock against the uh, Concorde um, is that it was a, a very narrow cabin. You know, yes, it almost I, got, I did. You know, if you go to the Museum of Flight in Seattle, you can walk through a Concorde cabin and see you know, it, it is two seats side by side, skinny little island, tiny windows. So right. Boom is saying they can have like really full sized windows, which is a thing we've we've been able to work on since then. Uh, they're going to build the fuselage out of carbon fiber composite, which doesn't have the issues that metal actually stretches. The Concorde got longer in flight. Uh, there are lots of things they can do to make building this thing cheaper and more efficient than Concorde. Uh, you know, having the prospect of any sort of DOD contract helps a lot. Yeah. Whatever reason, Concord, they, they never sold one to like the, to the Royal Air Force to haul the, the queen or the prime minister around. So there, there's no sort of subsidy of it that way. Uh, like, I think they can make it work, but, you know, why are they, you know, the, the CEO has told me in this video call we had two weeks ago. And when I talked to him at Collision in uh, the conference in Toronto in June, you know, we, we have more than one engine option that will work that are, you know, economically viable. Well, put your cards on the table, man. <laughs> it's time to put up or shut up. Stuart, th- does this fascinate you? I got to interview on this. Call me when they've, when they've invented the Heisenberg compensator and I can start transporting around the world. Um, <laughs> my, I actually have more of a question. It does interest me. I, listen, anything that gets you anywhere faster is okay with me. Um, I never minded long airline rides, but obviously losing a whole day when you're traveling overseas is a pain in the ass. And, it, you know, for those of us on a budget, yeah. you know, it, you know, it, you can't really afford a whole day not doing anything. Um, right. But I, I have more of a question than I do a comment on this is aren't there about a dozen different companies developing new supersonic aircraft? What is, why is Boom um bigger or smaller or better or more advanced than some of the other ones that I've been reading about. There are not actually, there was another company called Aerion, A-E-R-I-O-N. And they packed it up like a year or two ago. There, there have been smaller companies working to build a supersonic business jet, which is, you know, is not going to help us at all. 
Uh, so right now, Boobie One trying to make this an, on an airliner scale. And, you okay. know, we'll see who all supports Japan Airlines placed options for 20 overtures, which, again, that's like, you know, you know, he, here's a letter. There's no check attached to it. So, um, yeah, you know, the next step for, to watch from them, they built a, you know, test bed aircraft, the XB-1. That's actually rolled out of the factory. That's supposed to start flight tests in the Mojave Desert sometime this year. And that's to sort of like prove the overall concept. And supposedly they will start bending metal to build the first overture in like two years, which, yeah. So that, that metal has to include defined engines under the wings. So let's see what it looks and, like. And this is, this is only for international because of yes. the, the vibration or sonic boom issue over domestic territory. And I'm assuming yeah. that's everywhere. That's not just the U.S. Well, certain other countries might be like, well, we don't care. But yes, in the U.S., which is the, the relevant market here, and certainly in, in Europe as well. So over land, it'd be, it would max out at like Mach 0.94. And if you remember, Boeing was going to build a plane called the Sonic Cruiser, which they opted not to. It was this Delta Wing jet, two engines near the tail. And that mm -hmm. was going to try to hit that same use case. Transcon flight at, you know, just below the speed of sound. So you'd knock like an hour off uh, JFK to San Francisco or JFK to LAX. They decided there, there wasn't a market for that, built the 787 instead. Uh, which has done very well for, you know, long distance flights all around and, and has made a lot of travel faster just because it can go so much further without a refueling stop. One other aspect of your story actually fascinated me was that the, the sustain, quote unquote, sustainability of it and that they were going to try to do carbon capture. And maybe the discussion from that last week, there was a story last couple of days about a, a train designed to do carbon capture the carbon capture yeah. in the boom is that attached to the engine in other words they're going no, to be doing or is that a separate carbon capture thing that they would then use to create the fuel these are facilities on the ground and they're actually being built now there's actually a lot of money being put into it microsoft is putting onto that and putting money into that uh united is investing in, in, in that as well because the airline has said we want to be carbon neutral and not by planting a bunch of trees but by actually removing carbon dioxide from the air. And one of the things you can do with that is turn that CO2 into fuel, right. which is really kind of neat. And I think it's something we're going to have to do because we're, we're not slowing down the rate at which we put CO2 into the air fast enough. So let's go at it from the other way. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's a possibility. I was listening to a podcast where United CO was saying, like, you know, we're investing in this. But could you please treat this equally on a tax basis with how you treat, I guess, like biodiesel has some tax subsidy or tax credit mm -hmm. that SAF, Sustainable Aviation Fuel, does not right now? Well, maybe we should talk about the carbon capture train that I was reading about. I'll send yeah. you a link on it for, for next week. So that's a, because the problem with carbon capture is that the standalone, the stationary captures are not very fuel efficient to run and to run. And whereas the train, it's continually moving. And so it's, it's not using any real energy to capture the energy because you would simply attach this carbon capture car to existing trains. Hmm. Okay. I got to look that up. Well, this is a fascinating topic, guys. I mean, um, uh, the only comment that I'll make before we kind of conclude things is that I think where the opportunity for this type of travel is going to be is that the uh, uh, travel to the Pacific Rim, you know, it's it just that, you know, when I have to travel to Asia, you know, you're talking 12, 14 hours, depending on where you're going. Not to say that... Far in the, the hours. 
Yeah, well, depending, of course, where you're taking off. But, you know, it's a, it's a 12-hour flight to Taipei from San Francisco. I know because I've taken that flight many, many times. And if you could cut that flight down to five, six, seven hours and make it kind of like sort of a, a New York to L.A. type of flight, there will be a lot of appeal for a lot of um, yeah. uh, folks there. But, of course, it will depend on what the cost of the – uh, ticket is, but it's going to be very. It's going to be a very interesting category um, to check out. But guys, uh, listen. Thank you for participating in today's podcast. Really appreciate your time. For our viewing and listening audience, thanks for making the Smart Tech Check podcast part of your day or commute. Please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast, and don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Mark Vina Tech Guy. And until next time, have a great week. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Mm-hmm.